The reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, the last few verses, in fact, in chapter 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I say, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter will glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. Jesus did other things, many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray together? Father God, we thank you so much that you give us abundant life. And Lord God, we recognise that you give us that life so that we may have time to prepare for what you would have for us in all of eternity. So Lord God, as we come to consider how you forgive us, you restore us and turn us back to your ways, Lord, would we learn more by your spirit of how we can prepare for eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder who knows your life story. Have you ever told your life story? Perhaps uh, on one occasion, sort of going deep into the night when you just stayed up and someone was faithfully listening to you, Uh, or bit by bit over many years, perhaps in chronological order or perhaps more likely by themes as sort of particular thoughts and catch your train of thought. 
and maybe your life story is divided by key events, you know, before that event and after that event. As the years go by, we have more and more of a story, more chapters, more appendices and cameos to look back on, don't we? Our minds may play tricks with dates and the passage of time. We may dwell on particularly significant moments or ones that have strong emotions attached to them. Or, of course, we may blot them out. But come what may, it becomes easier to look back rather than to look forward. If ambition has faded or life-limiting health or finances or relationships press in on us, we may choose to cast our minds back rather than forward. Or maybe you're like me, who has never given much thought to my past. I just sort of enjoy the present and uh, prefer thinking about practical things around me and delighting in creation as I go for a walk or whatever. Maybe there's something to be repaired and I need to work out how to do it. I do give a bit of thought to the future. You hope me to, I would hope that I would, and uh, looking at the developing life of St. Peter's and at this moment, uh, not least, of course, considering the Archdeacon's letter to us, which is really a statement of saying, you know, where's our support for this initiative to St. Mark's? But our individual and relational past is important to understanding who we are and what we become. For example, we're affected on how we're parented a long time ago for most of us, and that depends on the sort of people our parents were and their circumstances at the time. Along with me and my siblings, we've never given much thought to the past. Apart from during lockdown, we finally read a compendium of our father's letters sent to family members over three and a half years that he was in the army overseas in World War II. And it was then, and only then, years after my father's died, that I understood where his driving commitment to national and then local politics came from. It may not be too strong a statement to say that it was survivor's guilt that shaped his post-war life. He felt he'd been spared death, so he had a burden of responsibility to build the peace and freedom, and he wrote about that in his letters, you know, before the war was won, before he'd survived. And he did it under the banner of how many friends of his had died. But it's not just parents. We are affected or influenced by others. I was on a retreat once when I found that one of those attending the retreat was a, a blast from the past. I'd not seen them for years, nor tried to, because they'd let me down, and a fellow Christian down. And in my early Christian life, this person had been an example to me, and had shown me the importance of the Bible. But they let God down, let that fellow Christian down, and let me down. They'd hurt the other person particularly, but on that retreat, I realized that they'd also hurt me. So after all those years, I prayed and forgave that person my hurt. It wasn't something I'd given any thought to, but that's what a retreat does to you. Sometimes something's brought to light that God wants to deal with in our lives. But it seemed that this was a God-given occasion. I didn't feel anything, but I believe it was an important thing to do. Speaking to a serving army chaplain recently, he told me that there's a growing realization after the Balkans and Iraq and Afghanistan that PTSD is perhaps not the most prevalent challenge for veterans and those who continue to serve. He said this, it is rather more 
the moral injury, guilt or shame that they have experienced. Moral injury, not the psychophysiological injury, seems perhaps to be the greatest malaise. Why did I survive? What if I'd volunteered? If only I'd done more. If I'd done what I said I would, was going to do. Try to imagine where Peter was emotionally, mentally, after the cock crowed a second time. And Jesus' eyes caught his gaze of wide-eyed horror at what he'd realised that he'd done. He's, he denied his Lord. How could he? His thoughts. But maybe ours as we read the account. How could he? Think of it. Think of the course of events that ran up to that denial. I mean, less than a day, barely hours earlier, sharing food, a special meal together, Jesus, Peter and John, the other closest male disciples. Where do we start? No arrangements had been made for the customary foot washing when they'd entered the house. And Luke's Gospel tells us that that should have been arranged by Peter and John. They were the ones sent forward to make arrangements. Clearly, they'd not done that. But when Jesus takes on that menial task of washing the 12 pairs of grubby feet, rather than apologizing about failing to make arrangements, Peter blusters that it's totally inappropriate for Jesus to wash his feet. You know, he avoids actually just accepting, goodness, I'm so sorry, I didn't arrange that. Jesus admonishes him. But rather than meekly accepting Jesus' words, he then gabbles that Jesus must wash him all over. It would have been an occasion when we would have said, stop digging, you're already in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> Come on, Peter, if you know what's good for you, keep your mouth shut and think what Jesus has been teaching and showing you since that day three years before on the shore of Galilee when he called you to follow him. The meal proceeds and Jesus says that one of the disciples which will betray him. Now, Peter is back in comfortable territory. He takes action, doesn't he? Telling John, who was the closest to Jesus at the time, to find out who is it? Who's going to be the traitor? Jesus identifies Judas to John by dipping some bread and passing it to Judas. That was a sign of particular love for a, a guest, a host giving a piece of bread personally to one of the guests. Such a sign of special love. Does the message get back to Peter that it's uh, from John? We never hear that whether John actually says to Peter, it, it's Judas. Maybe John holds back. Maybe he senses more of the moment, perhaps perceiving that Jesus is not intending to stop Judas, knowing that the time for his betrayal has come. How strange that when Judas leaves the mill and goes out into the night, that action man Peter doesn't react. Could there be some stirring within him that Jesus is in control despite this? Or is he consumed by some sense of his own weakness and that maybe he, along with the other disciples, are saying, is it me, Lord? Were they all so uncertain? Was Peter perhaps both the most uncertain of... Um, yeah, could they possibly be a betrayer? But whatever causes P Peter to pause at this point, Jesus' sta statement that Peter can't follow him where he is going gets Peter back into his normal reaction. Peter blurts out that he will lay down his life for his Lord. 
That's a big step to take, isn't it? Jesus knows better and tells Peter that assuredly Peter will disown him before the cock crows that day. I have to say, surely, surely, there's been enough at that meal, enough in the Garden of Gethsemane when they go to sleep. There must, surely the message would be getting through that this is serious. There's a commitment to be made to remain loyal despite the consequences. But no, later that night in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter is identified as a follower of Jesus. Not just once, but he has the opportunity after opportunity to steal himself to declare his allegiance to Christ. Haven't we all had occasions where we've been caught on the hop by something and we've not had that Christian response and we go away and we say, oh Lord, I've hashed that up. I could have said this. And you hope for a second chance to put it right. You know, is it someone, who, someone begging who approach, approaches you and you think, well, Lord, give me a second chance. I'll get it right next time. Well, Peter fluffed it on the second and the third occasion. And from Matthew's account, it transpires that before the final denial, a, crock, a cock had already crowed. Matthew's gospel talks about before the cock crows twice. So isn't that another step? When the cock crowed that night, Peter didn't sort of say, hang on, take stock. What a commitment have I made? Yet another reminder. So to summarise the preceding 12 hours, Peter fails to organise the foot washing. He tramples through Jesus' practical teaching on humble service, demonstrating the way of the coming kingdom. He's blind to the nature and the imminence of the physical goal and denouement of Jesus' ministry. He is deaf to Jesus' announcement of his glorification and all this before he disastrously commits to lay his life down for Jesus. And so following his undoing, he, he wrongly raises his sword in Gethsemane. He hears the first cock crow of the day and then denies Jesus three times. It's just, you know, it's just a litany. Uh, and then we have to say, could we be Peter? And I could... I, the picture that I came up with was Peter headed downhill, somehow in a downward spiral in those hours, missing the escape routes every time. And isn't God just and gives us and gracious that He gives us escape routes? I don't know where they still have them, but big mountain roads going downhill. They always used to have those. If your brakes failed, which I think with old technology that was always a concern, they had these escape lanes that were thick with sand and gravel, and you could just steer a little bit as you got faster and faster with failed brakes, and you'd go into the, the, the gravel and the sand, and you'd be slowed down and saved from disaster. Well, somehow Peter has missed those you know, opportunities to take the escape lane, and he's crashed disastrously. Now, for us... That may not be a matter of ours. It may be months or years over which we fail to heed the nudges that Jesus gives us and that we end up crashing. So often it happens with relationships. We ignore the warning signs until there's a catastrophe and people get hurt, perhaps having to live with that hurt for the rest of their lives. In the flickering light of smoking torches and brazes, Jesus looked at Peter. What did Peter see in those eyes of Jesus looking at him? Sadness and love, pain and compassion, 
but perhaps also a faraway look of loneliness and foreboding. Perhaps there's a window into Jesus' heart at that time. Because you know, Jesus knows that within the next few hours, the next to the person to desert him will be his own heavenly father, from whom he'd never been separated for all of eternity. So Peter's denial just rubs it home for Jesus, the place he's going to be when he is abandoned by his heavenly father. Surely Peter was haunted by what he saw in Jesus' eyes. Think how Peter must have felt during the hours that Jesus was in agony on the cross. We don't know where Peter was, hiding somewhere. When the whole land was cast into darkness, when the earth shook. I can only imagine that Peter was certainly terrified. What did he think had become of him? Surely he was lost for all time, condemned, despised by the other disciples, disgraced, useless and without merit, totally broken. But the risen Lord Jesus thinks differently and knows differently. Do you know, apart from Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene, which is recounted in John's Gospel, the only other recorded occasion that Jesus appears after his resurrection to a single person is to Peter. We have no understanding of knowledge of that. We just know that when the uh, 11 disciples were in the room and the Emmaus uh, couple came rushing back to Jerusalem and came in there, the, the disciples, doesn't say whether it was one disciple or many, they said, the Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. That's the only account we have of that one-to-one -one meeting between the risen Lord Jesus and Simon. With our, within hours of the resurrection, Jesus singles Simon out. And wouldn't we love to know about that encounter? Maybe at last, Peter was dumbstruck. And we can think we can reasonably assume that he was prostrate on the floor at Jesus' feet. That Peter came back to be in that upper room would seem to indicate that he somehow had moved on since his denial. And maybe it was that encounter with Jesus. Maybe he was already on the road to re recovery. He comes back and, I mean, wouldn't the other disciples be shunning him? I don't know. Maybe they were just feeling, well, it could have been me. Peter's brokenness and shame in somehow, somehow perhaps has been contained at that point. Maybe John or one of the other disciples who fled from Gethsemane had already reached out to him. That would be a brotherly thing to do, wouldn't it? So this is a long way of saying this is the background to Peter's rest, reinstatement or re restoration. We know Jesus' thrice-repeated challenge, Simon, do you love me? And we've, I think most of us have grown up knowing there's, there's two Greek, Greek words being used by Jesus. Twice, initially, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me with agape love? that love which God um, has for his people, that Jesus has for his Father. A heavenly love, a love not simply of emotion, but of will and intellect and of spirit. Humble Peter can only affirm of Jesus' love by saying filio, a brotherly affection. When Jesus doesn't get the response that perhaps he would have wanted, Jesus the third time says, okay, 
do you love me with that brotherly, that filial love, that brotherly affection? Do you have brotherly, brotherly affection for me? Surely, after three times, Peter is probably weeping, humbled before his Lord. He can but say, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. There's debate about whether one should make a big thing about the different uh, uses of the, the love in your different words for it. If you do, then you have to sort of go into the, the different sort of um, uh, meanings of feeding my sheep and caring for them and lambs and sheep. But uh, the important point of this reading is the forgiveness of Jesus. He keeps on forgiving. That's the key. Look at the litany of keeping on failing. And Jesus restores, keeps on forgiving. Jesus is indeed amazing. Part of our sermon series, Jesus is amazing. So we've seen the litany of opportunities missed by Peter, the sorry tear away descent to the crash of his denial, and so has Jesus. And now Jesus draws him back with a simple question, do you love me? But Jesus is not simply restoring Peter to relationship with his Lord. But I think he is asking his threefold questions in front of the other disciples. Now, commentators may disagree whether they, well, Jesus took him aside, but as I read it, you know, this is a reinstatement among his disciples, who is now put as, as the pastor, the leader of the church. They've witnessed his arrogance. They know he's an abject failure. And Jesus says, and I, I'm putting Peter back among you to be your pastor. Tom Wright thinks differently that they draw aside, but, and I just delight in the fact where you get commentators having different views of interpretation of scripture, and you think, well, didn't the, perhaps the Holy Spirit intended it to be ambiguous so that we can just accept, you know, him speaking to us in the way that he wants to speak to us two millennia later. I, I, these things aren't by chance. God knows he's going to use this scripture for all eternity to bless us. And, but more than restoring Peter to relationship, Jesus is restoring him for something. It's not just saying, yep, you're back on your feet, you know, get on with following me. No, I mean, get on with um, just being in relationship with me. It is about, you know, I'm ahead of the game. It is about following Jesus. So Jesus is restoring him for ministry, for service, for kingdom work. And yes, Peter's primary role is to be the pastor of the church. Yes, he's an apostle. Go back to chapter 20 and verse 21. You see um, disciples being sent out, uh, establishing them as apostles. But I think it is primarily about Jesus saying, yes, I'm putting on your feet, you on your feet, because I've got a job of work for you to do. There's work to be done. There's a, a, a journey to follow me in my footsteps. See where I take you. And yes, we see that bit about when uh, Peter's going to, going to die and the way he's going to die. And what about John, says Peter? And Peter can't really believe that he, he is the one being put back on his feet. What about John? He's the one who seems so close to Jesus, seems to be more on Jesus' wavelength, more heavenly-minded. And he had the guts, actually, after fleeing. I think he, we reckon he's the one who fled the Garden of Gethsemane he had just the loincloth on and they didn't catch him, you know, and he went away, ran away naked. But where do we next see John? He was at the foot of the cross. You know, here's a guy, I mean, he probably was a young lad, wasn't he? A, probably 16-year-old or something, you know, who, who somehow had the, the ability to 
turn around his fleeing to go to the foot of the cross. What about him, Peter may be thinking? Where does he fit in? Don't worry about him, says Jesus. He's not your concern. You must follow me. You must follow me. And those, I think if you go through the whole of that passage, you must follow me are probably the words above all that you want to take away. Yes, there's a reinstatement of love and wow, you know, look at God's grace, Jesus' grace um, that he has forgiven. But we're forgiven for a purpose. We're forgiven to carry on, to pick ourselves up with Jesus' hand there and to move on. And that's what the Christian life is about. Yes, we learn from those mistakes. We learn about God's great loving character and we start again. And I think just to wrap up, the reason I started about talking about our life journey is that, and gave that example for me, which I don't totally understand, but there's stuff in our background where Jesus wants us to just say, hang on, you, know, you went, to what, went wrong there and I forgave you and you moved on, but actually recognize it, recognizing that it's all part of the fabric of life. And there may be times when, maybe situations, maybe with that individual who I had to forgive, I don't know whether they have, in a sense, come in repentance. I mean, they were, they were there, but um, a you know, Christian retreat, but you know, have they come in repentance? God, It's not my business to know that, but uh, sometimes it's our business to forgive, even if we haven't been the worst harmed or whatever. So I just finished with something that Tom Wright says, which I found late on in, um, uh, in preparing this. Tom Wright says... Somewhere deep down inside you, there is a love for Jesus. And though, goodness knows, you've let him down enough times, he wants to find that love, to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and give you a new work to do. Father God, we thank you so much that we're a work in progress. Lord, may we delight in the fact that you are the maintainer, the one who puts it together us again and never gives up, never walks out saying this one is beyond repair. Thank you, Lord God, that you have us and we don't have to have any special qualifications uh, in what you're asking us to do. If we love the Lord Jesus, you know we love you, you will make the most of us and we delight in that. And Lord, we pray that in these weeks and months ahead that we may uh, seek you in our past and know that there's perhaps unfinished business, bits and pieces that uh, you've uh, helped us to just part, but which actually, ideally, we should be dealing with and moving on from. So, Lord, uh, open our hearts to um, how you see us and how you see the lives we've led thus far and give us that great assurance of your love as we look to the future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>